0: Hey, folks, a quick note before we get started. As I told you last week, Stay Tuned with Preet has been nominated for a People's Voice Webby Award for Best Episode of a News and Politics Podcast. The episode features my conversation with Dan Goldman, who offered us his first interview after serving as lead House Majority Counsel during the first impeachment of President Trump. We're neck and neck with some very formidable fellow nominees and need your help to pull off another Webby's victory. So head to vote.webbyawards.com and search for Stay Tuned or Preet to cast your ballot. You can also find a direct voting link in the show notes of this episode. Today, Thursday, May 6th, is the last day to vote. Thanks, as always, for your support. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara.
1: You know, having uh, spent almost six decades as an African-American man, You know, seeing seeing this, uh, I was just breathtakingly uh, stunned in in the outrageousness uh, of it. This is somebody's life. This isn't a victory in that sense.
2: It's an acknowledgement of the truth of what happened, but it's, it's not a cause for celebration.
0: That's Jerry Blackwell and Steve Slisher. They're the two men who led the prosecution of Derek Chauvin, the Minneapolis police officer, convicted of murdering George Floyd. Blackwell and Slisher are both private attorneys. In July of last year, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison asked each of them to join the prosecution team. They had never met. Blackwell, an accomplished civil litigator who had never tried a criminal case, ended up giving the opening statement. And Slisher, who served for 13 years as a prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office in St. Paul, gave the closing argument. Today, the pair join me for the longest and most in-depth interview they've given since the trial. We talk about the trial's big moments and key decision points, but we also discuss what the verdict meant for these two men personally and for the cause of racial justice in this country. I found the conversation both powerful and deeply revealing. So this week, we're doing something a little different. Instead of taking your questions, we're going straight to my full interview with the team that secured the conviction of Derek Chauvin. That's coming up. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Jerry Blackwell and Steve Slisher, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. It's a real honor and treat to have you, given how much you have done for the country And for the justice system, I want to thank you for your service, which, by the way, I don't know if everyone knows this, each of you is in private practice, and you performed your services at the Derek Chauvin trial for free, as we say, pro bono. So thank you for that as well. You're welcome. Thank you. I've got a lot to ask you about the trial, the nature of the trial, strategy of the trial, the meaning of the trial. So let's get through as much as we can. And I I almost wasn't sure where to start. And I thought, well, why don't I start at the beginning which is not the trial, which is not the opening statements, but the actual killing of George Floyd himself last May, uh, May of 2020. Both of you were in private practice, had no idea that you would become involved in that case in any way, probably had no idea if there would ever be a criminal case against anyone. Do you recall how you reacted to the murder itself? What reaction you had when you saw the videotape when you were still just private citizens?
2: Uh, I, I do remember that reaction. I, you know, having spent over two decades as a prosecutor, law enforcement is something that, you know, I have a keen interest in. Uh, a lot of friends in law enforcement, and a real uh, love for law enforcement, law enforcement officers. And I remember looking at that and seeing it, and not recognizing it at all as something that uh, should be coming from a law enforcement officer. And it would really uh, just hit you right straight in the stomach, right straight in the heart. And I and I remember, you know, after seeing it, knowing that I would probably be called in my firm. I'm in a relatively uh, small firm, about eighty lawyers. Um, I would be called to sort of contextualize uh, the events because there aren't any. There's not anybody else in my firm that has the same exact background as me. You know, spending that much time as a prosecutor, and so. I spent a lot of time over the next few days talking to uh, you know different partners, associates, staff members, just about what had happened and helping uh, helping our firm you know kind of process it because it really was wrenching to everybody. And Jerry,
1: you know, having uh, spent almost six decades as an African American man, you know, seeing, seeing this, uh, I was just breathtakingly uh, stunned in, in the outrageousness uh, of it. Um, you know, what, what exactly could equal protection mean or what is the rule of law if there isn't some accountability for that? And at the same time, there was this uh, kind of uncertainty in your stomach uh, that nothing may come of this at all because we, we've been at this intersection before of, to me, outrageous uh, misconduct uh, imposed upon, uh, you know, black people, brown people, colored people, uh, because of the immutable characteristic. And, uh, and quite often, the rule of law itself has protected that. And uh, so my initial gut reaction was uh, the, the, the sense of outrage, uh, the sense that uh, that's an earthquake, uh, and what's coming next is a, a giant tsunami uh, in, uh, in public reaction. And you know, I do a lot of work for Fortune 500, 100 uh, companies, and I'm one of the few people. Some of them know that they would uh, categorize as, in quotes woke uh, for uh, the, uh, the the white in house counsel. So I expected I might hear from a number of them just with their reactions, uh, what my thoughts might be. And sure enough, I did hear uh, from um, from a number of them. Two of them in tears uh, when they call. Um, and and one of the statements I was told was, uh, it was so shocking to me as a white person because. Uh, i don 't believe that ever would have happened to me as a white person, and there it is in my face, and they were simply shocked and stunned by it. so it was just the, the sense of the, the shock and the outrage uh, of the whole thing and the apparent apparent callousness uh, of the the police officers involved uh, was just stunning
2: you know jerry i hadn't heard i hadn't heard him say that before, and I remember having that reaction too um, when I was watching it, thinking to myself, and then hearing, you know, what the whole call was about—suspected uh, a suspected counterfeit twenty-dollar bill—I right. remember thinking to myself, "Well, that that would not have happened to me. Uh, it it just—they would have assumed it was a mistake. Um, they would have asked me about it, and if it became apparent that it wasn't a mistake, they probably would have um, given me a ticket, written you a ticket, and gone on my way." And
0: so, I, I do remember thinking that as well. Did you, Steve? Given your experience as a former prosecutor, aside from being horrified by what you saw, did you form a view as to whether or not this was a prosecutable criminal case against one or more officers at that time?
2: You know, I certainly did believe that that was going to be a prosecutable case against, um, um, you know, Chauvin. Uh,
0: You've forgotten his name already.
2: <laughs> well, I know I, I was caught mispronouncing it several times during the trial between Chauvin and Chauvin. The first time I heard it, uh, I think someone said Chauvin, and so it was hard for me to switch. but yeah, no, I, I remember um, thinking to myself that you know that looked like excessive force just on the face of it, um, based on his, you know, the placement of his knee on on uh, George Floyd's neck. But, you know, I also had a healthy sense of reality in that, you know, I think that the track record is pretty clear in terms of how many officers are prosecuted uh, for offenses like this, and then how many are ultimately convicted. I don't think that I really questioned whether or not charges would be brought. I was questioning at what level, and then, but always, always wondering if the officers involved would ultimately be convicted, because it's just very difficult uh, for people to accept uh, that a police officer would have done something intentionally wrong uh, we we tend to try to think of any reason that could be a possible rational explanation for what it is that we're seeing that looks so plainly wrong but we're wired to believe the
1: police um, you know at, at from a le- very le- young age at least we meaning uh, uh, white America not not, mm-hmm. not black or brown America mm-hmm. um, that, uh, that have different experiences uh, since childhood
2: you know and perhaps that's so Jerry but also let's not forget how many people of color called the police on the police when they saw this horrible thing happen I mean I think that no matter what your your mistrust is there still is something that makes you reach out even George Floyd um, believed the
1: police would help him sure but 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 I'm simply saying there isn't this sort of you know reticence or wholesale endorsement or disbelief in the idea that the police could ever do this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because uh, for me, uh, my most nervous moments uh, as a citizen simply minding my own business is driving on the street and noticing that there is a police car behind me. Uh, and, And I couldn't remember really a time in my life where there was a police car behind me where I felt more comfortable, where I felt safer, where I did not feel at risk. Uh, and if you're not going to be hurt, then you're certainly going to be harassed. You're going to be stopped for no reason. And in all likelihood, there will be some callous person who gets out of a car and who just gratuitously speaks to you in a nasty way for no reason. And all of which you just like just to avoid. And so that's what, for me, as an African-American lawyer, even, uh, protect protective serve has meant. That's what it's translated into. And I had very few experiences to the contrary when I uh, uh, just randomly encountered uh, police, no matter where I've been in the country.
2: And I've literally never had the experience of being pulled over for no reason uh, based on the color of my skin, right? So that's, a, that's an experience that you, know, you can describe it to me, but I don't really get it. Like, I understand what you're saying, but it, it, it doesn't have the same uh, meaning to me as someone who's experienced it. Mm-hmm.
0: Jerry, that experience that you've had many, many times in your life, did that play some role in your agreement to get involved in the prosecution of this case coming out of private practice?
1: Certainly, yes. I mean, it meant I had a personal connection with the inhumanity of it, with the objectification of people uh, by the police that way. Um, uh, And for me, it's a form of random violence, even. You don't know this person, this individual. They haven't really done anything uh, that's unlawful. You simply have targeted them for negative aggression because of um, an immutable characteristic they have and the fact that you have a badge that gives you cover uh, to do it. And uh, and I've experienced it many times in my life. Uh, and sometimes as a lawyer leaving my office with my briefcase and white collar on and still you know, harassed in various ways by the police who stopped me for no reason. Um, or they are pulled behind my car when I come out of my building and and I stop and look to say, is there something wrong? They point, get in your car, just point to get in your car. And I drive away in a the block Then they put the light on anyway and then pull you over and I get a lecture about being three feet from the curb, and I could write you a ticket and all kinds of other things that were said to provoke, actually, and, uh, and I just didn't take the bait because taking it would have meant they would have justified it in escalating things. So, so that definitely played a role uh, for me uh, that George Floyd, for so many black and brown uh, people, uh, was in a way emblematic, um, and I'm not talking about the, the drug addiction and so on, but just that kind of harsh, callous treatment is something we can all relate to because we've all experienced it in degrees. Uh, and we know what that looks like and what that feels like. And the fact that quite often it goes without any redress whatsoever uh, under the law. It's just an injury that you just have to live with because there's nothing that you can do. And you have to then go before jurors, juries, uh, quite often where the majority of people uh, find the whole experience foreign uh, to them. And, uh, and that's because quite it's a never burden. happened to them. It's never happened to them. And <laughs> it may be they're uncles, sons, brothers, fathers, and so on who behave this way. But I know things about, apparently, uh, their own people. They don't know (laughs) in terms of how they behave.
0: Well, that's why these videotapes, not just in the George Floyd case, but in all these other cases are important because people who have not experienced this kind of thing are now witnessing those things on videotape. And as you said at the trial, they can believe their own eyes, right?
1: That's right. If you wonder, just watch this. And, And the trial was... Uh you, you'll talk more about it in detail in, the, in a second. But uh, even in the opening statement, I mean, I was uh, intentionally sub, sub, subdued and factual in the presentation in the opening uh, because I thought the uh, the video spoke so much uh, for itself by itself and it didn't need any contribution from me with respect to vitriol or, or anything added to it. So I simply wanted to basically tee it up. And and let the jurors see for themselves and experience for themselves. And for those who um, wouldn't otherwise believe, uh, well, seeing is believing.
0: You raise this issue of treatment in the hands of the cops. Now now you are well known. Your face is well known. Your name is well known. And you have successfully prosecuted a police officer. Have you had any interactions with police since the trial? Uh, Anything notable?
1: we both have obviously many interactions with the police who are all, all around the courthouse, the various sheriffs and, and other officers who are at the courthouse all the time. And, and, and I will, will tell you, and, and maybe Steve will speak to this too, but it was overwhelmingly uh, positive. And, and I can't really tell you how many police officers who were there came up to say, thank you for doing this, that when these kinds of things happen, it reflects badly on the rest of us. And we had police officers come up and say that now, driving around in the in the twin cities i haven't had any encounter with the police and i have to say i'm grateful for that because <laughs> you know, no idea what i might encounter still
0: i want to get into the details of the trial in a second but first let's talk about for a moment how you both wound up on the trial team at some point the case did not proceed under the the local district attorney's office supervision it was transferred to the attorney general's office in minnesota and was under the supervision of the attorney general of the state keith ellison and each of you was contacted by Keith Ellison. Neither of you, I believe, really knew him. I think one of you had never met him at all, and never spoken to him. You no, know,
2: that was me. I had never met um, Attorney
0: General Ellison before.
2: Uh, never spoken with him. And uh, you know, do you, you know, think it was a wrong number? Known him for a while. You know, I <laughs> were did. You, were I, you surprised I, by the call? I was surprised by the call. And, and in fact, I, I saw there was a. You know, I'm, I'm working at home. You know, this is all in the context of the COVID pandemic as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so you have all of those different things that happened. I, I saw that I had a missed call, uh, on my phone and I just missed it. And so I hit redial and it was, uh, the attorney general. Um, and I could, I could recognize his voice and he identified, he said, this is, uh, Keith Ellison. And, uh, I kind of laughed cause I didn't think that it really was. I thought somebody <laughs> might be, you know, playing a joke on me. Um, and, uh, but then it became clear it really was him and he called me and reached out uh, because he was wondering if I would be able to help him out with this case. And um, I just remember thinking to myself, you know, as you know, you're a prosecutor. That's at some point in your career as a prosecutor, if you go down that path, you stop thinking of yourself as a lawyer and you think of yourself as a prosecutor. I left that office, um, you know, in 2017, January, 2017. Uh, so when I get this call uh, asking to help with this case, it stirred up a lot of uh, feelings uh, in me in terms of what uh, I loved doing so much. I, you know, I love being a prosecutor. It was a very big part of my identity. And he asked if I could help with the case. And, uh, and of course, my initial reaction was, well, yes, uh, I would love to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I'd seen the video. I knew that uh, the state was in a significant amount of pain. The city, the state, the whole country was in, was in pain. And just as a prosecutor, you find yourself in uh, that position where you need to uh, walk with someone who is going through pain and trauma, whether it's a family of a murder victim or uh, you know, sexual assault, any, any sort of crime. And so that was my instinct. Of course, I had to call my partners and uh, ask them if that was something that I could do. And, you know, they were very receptive and very supportive uh, of, of the effort. The, the, the firm that I belonged to was kind of born of, of uh, uh, some anti-Semitism, some smart attorneys who had gone to Harvard and came back to Minnesota, back to Minneapolis at a time in the late 40s, anti-Semitism was high and they couldn't get hired right? And, and so they started their own firm, and they always uh, had this culture of allowing lawyers to follow their conscience. One of our uh, founders uh, was uh, in the uh, Nuremberg trials, was a, was a prosecutor. You know, they supported attorneys who've uh, been in the, a- you know, supported the ACLU and whatnot. And so they, they were very supportive of that. I was just so grateful uh, that they would do, do you, that. Did you think
0: it was odd at all, that given the resources of the state and the number of assistant attorneys general that there must be in that office, that they would go outside the office to find people to try the case? You know, I I think I I was aware that, you know, because remember, I came
2: from that office. I worked at the attorney general's office from 2000 to 2003 at a time when they had a fairly robust criminal trial division, you know, doing a lot of cases, uh, you know, all over the state. We have 87 counties in Minnesota, a seven-county metro area. They handle a lot of their own You know, um, complex prosecutions and homicides. But the AG's office did a lot of the outstate stuff. But, you know, during the period of time when I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office, there was some attrition in the office that wasn't replaced. I think there was more of an emphasis on, um, you know, consumer protection and and whatnot. And so I didn't think that the Criminal Trial Division was actually that large uh, at the AG's office. And so I could see where they would want to get some people to, to help support the case. I think I thought, and Jerry thought, I'll let him speak for himself, that we would be more on a consulting basis. Um, just, I'd had some experience, um, you know, prosecuting a, a civil rights case before and, and, and certainly had a lot of prosecution experience. I, I thought that I'd be, you know, working more in that capacity.
0: Mm-hmm. And then Jerry, with respect to you, this is stunning to people who are in this business. Not only were you not a former prosecutor, You were not even a criminal defense lawyer. And it's unusual for people to have the kind of trust, faith, and confidence in you that Keith Ellison clearly had. And and I wonder, as I, I heard you speak earlier in the conversation, whether in some way you think that not having that prosecutorial background and not having had the experience of working shoulder to shoulder with law enforcement, including with police departments and police officers, was that somehow an advantage to you?
1: It was, not in a sense, it, it was an advantage. Uh, it was, f- for me, both a, a, a strength and what no doubt made me supremely frightening to a number of people.
0: <laughs> I mean, you're clearly an accomplished trial lawyer, and, and I should say, I haven't said this yet, you two and the rest of the team did an outstanding job. I, I noted that multiple times on social media. But when, when I learned, and it took me a while to learn, that you had not tried a criminal case, I, I will tell you that I was
1: shocked. Right, right. I, I had. I think I, I agree with Steve that that we initially thought that that we would be essentially behind the scenes, uh, maybe helping with uh, with strategy or approach the witness or witness prep or that sort of thing. Uh, I think that General Allison called me because I do try cases and I've had to try hard cases in tough jurisdictions, mostly outside of, of Minnesota. I've been in various parts of Mississippi and uh, in Oakland, uh, in Madison County, Illinois. And I've had to go in there uh, for uh, Fortune 500 companies, Fortune 100 companies. They quite often have difficult stories to tell uh, as defendants. I mean, you have tough histories to deal with, tough witnesses, tough documents. And you have to figure out in every case, strategically, how to win with that. Uh, and, and I've had uh, quite a bit of success, by the grace of the Lord, doing it. And, uh, and I think he felt that some of that might be useful uh, to this team. But but again, I thought it would be more or less in a, in a support kind of role uh, function, and, uh, and it evolved to be something other than that. Uh, I've always said as a trial lawyer, I think with the right uh, kind of support, you can really try any kind of case because there's no such thing as a criminal jury and a civil jury. A jury is a jury. And if you uh, have a narrative, if you thought through the strategy, if you know the law, uh, and if you don't manage to mess it up such that you can't, can't keep your verdict when it goes up on appeal— <laughs> you know, you'll be all right. So it, it was kind of the first foray, and 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 believe you me, as I describe myself as a freshwater alligator. Yeah, saltwater crocodile pond. Uh,
0: <laughs> I, I will tell you that metaphor is a little bit lost on a New Yorker like me.
1: But <laughs>
0: it's, it's very colorful. I don't know a lot about, I don't even know the difference between an alligator and a crocodile. Well, we don't have any of them in Minnesota. We just have mosquitoes. <laughs>
1: so so uh, I, I was uh, stepping gingerly, um, you know, most of the time uh, here to make sure I wasn't running afoul of something that's a, a tripwire uh, specific to, uh, to criminal law. Uh, since there's no such thing as Brady or Giglio in my civil world All for right. starters, and I had to deal with this. What you mean? We're going to give them that? Are you kidding?
2: <laughs> <laughs> what are and you talking say, about? Yes, Jerry, we are going to give them that. <laughs> we're gonna, on a silver platter. But, <laughs> you know, I, I would say pre, just in in those initial conversations and in, uh, describing the case, it would be impossible to listen to Jerry describe the case and not think that he should have a significant stand up role. In the trial. Uh, I, I felt that right away. Uh, and, and, I'm, and, and apparently, so did Attorney General Ellison. Just as we progressed in and evolved in our various groups, talking about the different parts of the case that we were trying to help with, um, I just think the role sort of emerged.
0: Jerry, can I ask you, did anything about this experience cause you, at least for a moment, to regret that you had never spent time as a prosecutor?
1: And <laughs> no, that's quite a question <laughs> it's a, a great deal. Well, you're <laughs> very good
0: at it and you accomplish something important. And so I, I wonder if you've thought about that.
1: No, I, I didn't think I'd made a, a, a wrong life choice. Uh, I did think because this is the first time in my life professionally where it made Im- just eminently good sense to me to jump first, to leap first, and then worry about the landing second. And, and after I jumped out here <laughs> uh, into this, it dawned on me once I committed to it, wait a minute. You've never done a criminal case in your life. <laughs> right. uh, you, you could end up as a quote on a T-shirt. Uh, this <laughs> this could be the end of whatever. Something
0: about alligators. Something what, about a dead alligator. <laughs> right, <laughs>
1: right. Right. And uh, and whatever whatever traction you'd gained as a civil practitioner may be lost too, and reputation ruined. So in that sense, I certainly wished uh, that I had uh, the the kind of criminal experience that that Steve uh, has or had. But at the same time, uh, this is an issue. It was not just a case. It was a cause. And for me, it was worth landing on the line with whatever I had and uh, just to put it all up. And, and uh, hopefully uh, the good guys win. Justice prevails. And, and if not, there go I. Um, and, and so I just set that all aside in and, and sort of my worries about how I might be impacted. But, but I didn't think that I had kind of missed my calling. And that I should have been a prosecutor, um, even in the civil world. Um, I'm I'm happy taking on a plaintiff's case, although I do mostly defense work. You know, I'm always sort of guided by what's the truthful position that I can take a stand on. Whether I'm defending it or prosecuting it, it feels the same to me. Right.
0: Do you guys write a lot of notes to each other during the trial? It was hard to see depending on the camera angle. But do you each do your own thing? Or are you communicating with each other and the rest of the team during the trial on a regular basis? You know that was hard because of uh,
1: COVID. There were some limitations. We really weren't able to. We had rules. Yeah, that, that we weren't supposed to <laughs> rules. Be. Yes. there were rules. There were there were rules in, in the courtroom, courtroom that we were not supposed to be passing notes.
2: Yeah. Oh, why? It was but because co- of COVID. Because of COVID. Yeah. They had all this plexiglass up and all this other stuff, and uh, you know, of course, you find ways to communicate. But you know, we we've spent uh, so much time together. I'd say, over the last nine months. And, you, learned, um,
0: you learned telepathy.
2: You know, a little bit, right? I mean, you've been in situations where you... You guys are haven't... far more impressive than I even realized. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell I'm, your friends. I'm in awe. <laughs> you know, we had a very um, structured communication chain. And, and we, you know, we had meetings that took place at prescribed times, um, you know, afterwards and Keith Ellison kept us very much, uh, you know, there was definitely a chain of information flow such that there weren't, you know, we weren't up there um, winging it, right? You know, we we had a plan and, uh, you know, going into court was executing the plan. So the question,
0: it's a broad question I want to ask that is not about the evidence, I don't know if you have a theory on this. I've always thought that every trial, civil probably also, my experience is in criminal, that you have to have a theme or you know one or two related themes of the case. Why? It's not required uh, as a part of your proof. They don't make up the elements of, of, the, of the case, but there have to be themes and there also have to be sort of um, thoughts about what the case is not about. And I noticed as you tried the case and the evidence came in, your team was very clear on what the case was not about and was fairly clear on what the case was about, although some things were omitted, and I'll get to, to those in a moment. But did you think about this case, not just in terms of what the building blocks of evidence were, but what the theme of the case was?
2: Uh, absolutely. I mean, and, and in fact, I think that in terms of you know, our first meetings, from our very first meeting, um, that was really Jerry's lane was, uh, as, a, as a trial lawyer, and and of course, uh, I certainly did the same thing as a as a prosecutor. But you do need to pick a theme. Um, yeah. you need to be able to give jurors just a, a way of thinking about the facts and the evidence because it's a you know it is it's a com- it's a compelling story. Uh, it's real. It's heartbreaking. It's tragic. But it's important that you're able to touch the jurors in a way that they're going to be able to remember the evidence and the facts that you present to them. But, you know, uh, we did uh, spend a lot of time talking about our themes and developing our themes. And in one of those first meetings, uh, you know, Jerry um, said the words that, you know, you can believe your eyes. Uh, and, and of course, that was uh, probably the most important theme. Uh,
0: well, what, but what's the theme there, Jerry? Is it common sense? It,
1: it is. It's a common sense uh, theme. And, and it is also... Uh, it, its own nature of a uh, of a, a theme that sort of deflects the efforts uh, to to have the jurors look away from what they've seen to listen to some lawyer telling them the lawyer's version of what they've seen, and uh, and you don't need lawyers speak lawyers spin, any of it. You can believe what you have seen for yourself, and it was to get the jurors back to the video because I felt any ordinary human being would see that and would have a good sense of what they had just seen, which is essentially a man dying one breath at a time with a callous officer on top of him. And I fully expected that the defense would be doing everything they can to have the jurors look away from the video and to substitute instead lawyer argument and, and testimony. Um, and I want to bring it back to believe your eyes. Um, believe your eyes is homicide, it's murder.
0: You know, here's something that I think is difficult maybe for some folks to understand. As we talk about theme, And as we talk about what this case is really about, both in the courtroom and for the wider, broader country at large, we began this conversation talking about interactions between Black citizens and white police officers. And that's clearly uh, how millions of Americans have been talking about this case that you two gentlemen tried. And for the country, given the protests and the videotape and the larger problem of criminal justice reform and policing and the treatment of Black and brown people in this country by law enforcement, in too many cases, that's what the country has been roiled up about. That's been what has galvanized so many people. That's what's getting senators and the president of the United States to talk about the issue. Racial justice, that was not a theme at the trial. And I understand why. But, but could each of you address the disconnect between how the whole world saw this case and the racial implications of it and underpinnings of it, but how that didn't make any showing at the trial? Sure, I mean, in as you know, when
2: you're trying a criminal case, there are elements you need to prove, right? And we uh, were very cognizant of the fact that the world was watching. The world's talking about our case, right? They have opinions. They, they, and some of them opinion. Those opinions were shared very generously with us during the trial. They'd, they'd email things that they think we should bring out or whatnot, but. The fact of the matter is that we weren't trying the case to the world. We were trying the case to 12 people. We're trying the case to to a jury. And and we knew that you know at the end of the trial, the world isn't going to be in the deliberation room with them. All that's going to be there is their collective memories of the evidence, the exhibits uh, that we marked and entered into evidence, and those jury instructions, which are going to lay out all of the elements that they uh, have to find. And just in, in my experience, trying cases, especially criminal cases, jurors take that very seriously. Um, they do not take those responsibilities lightly and they pore over that stuff. And so, you know, we could, we could talk about those issues of, of racial justice and inequity, you know, then there's certainly a place for that. But that place is not in a criminal trial. In a criminal trial, um, what we need to talk about is the evidence, and we need to prove that case. And, and maybe that case becomes a springboard for some of those important issues to be discussed.
1: And, and here, in, in, a, in a bigger, even, in, even bigger context, um, I, I was very conscious and aware that politically, we, we have a deeply polarized uh, country um, with, uh, along, racial, um, along racial lines. And if we allowed the trial to become a referendum on any of these various political camps' views, uh, Blue Lives Matters, Black Lives Matters, and with the standard like Reasonable Doubt, I mean, we're toast. Uh, mm-hmm. Because if, if the jurors, any of them, uh, get fixed in their mind that this case is a referendum on some deeply held political point of view that they have, then they won't get off of that. And you only need one to lose. And so we had to, to really steer uh, the case away from the shoals of uh, these deeply held sort of political views that jurors might have so that it can be tried just on the basis of the facts as relate to Mr. Chauvin and not fall into these sort of, you know, ditches of uh, of, of political perspectives, which, uh, which I, I thought was fraught with peril for the prosecution if we allowed that to happen.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Although endlessly fascinating, because what you have on the videotape is a white man's knee in the back of the neck of a black man Killing him slowly over nine minutes and twenty nine seconds, and you, you you came onto the case in part because your feelings about because of your feelings in part about racial justice. This case was about that to a large degree, but but to get some form of of, of justice and a first step towards ultimate racial justice, you had to stay away from that. Do you find that ironic
1: at all? Well, in, in a way, pre. But on the other hand, it wasn't just Mister Chauvin in the minds of the public that was on trial. It was the criminal justice system on trial. Yeah. And, and, and the public was on the edge of the chair. We can see what Mr. Chauvin did, but, but is where will the accountability come from in the criminal justice system? And, uh, and, and that is where I think the public was looking, having uh, sat through here in Minnesota, um, Philando Castile or Jamar Clark, uh, you know, fresh in the mind still, Rodney King. Um, we're, we're seeing is not even necessarily believing, uh, depending on who's on the jury. So uh, to me, the jury was out on whether this criminal justice system would actually do justice uh, in in this instance. And that's really where uh, I think the public was was focused.
0: And you both also made it a point, and Steve, you especially, in your closing argument, to say what the case was not about. And I understand this was highly strategic as well. You said, and I'm quoting, uh, quote, this is not an anti-police prosecution. It's a pro-police prosecution. Make no mistake, this is not a prosecution of the police. End quote. How important was that theme and that point? Do you think to the trial? I think it was essential.
2: I mean, you think about this, Preet. What what is the standard um, that we use to judge a police officer's conduct? What would a reasonable police officer do under similar circumstances? If this is a if this is a trial against the police generally, then that means none of them are reasonable. And all of them then would have engaged in this similar conduct and we lose, right? I mean, if, if that is the standard, what would a reasonable police officer, not a reasonable bystander, not a reasonable member of the public, but a reasonable police officer do, then, then uh, we have to embrace um, reasonable police officers. And we had a number of reasonable police officers come forward and testify at the trial, including our chief of police, Once there was no longer any resistance
0: and clearly when Mr Floyd was no longer responsive and even motionless to continue to apply that level of force to a person proned out, handcuffed behind their back that in no way, shape or form is anything that is by policy, is not part of our training, and it is certainly
1: not part of our ethics or our values.
0: Did you have that many officers testify for that reason? Or did you actually need all those officers to testify to everything that they testified to?
2: We needed every single one of those officers to testify to what they testified to. Um, same with the number of bystanders, same with everything. Because, you know, all you have to do is look at the win-loss record in terms of the prosecution of Police to understand that there's no such thing as a slam dunk case, and um, under resource um, the cases uh, at your peril. Don't take anything for granted. Don't take any person for granted. Don't take any juror for granted. Sure,
0: you know none of it. Did you ever get criticized? Mean, I, we got this criticism sometimes in SDNY, and I don't know if Jerry or Steve if you've ever heard this. There's some judges who will say, "Stop over trying your case," and I never really understood that. <laughs> what I guess the judge means is. Too much already. You have an overabundance of proof. Um, have you heard that? And and did you have any worry that people thought that's what was going on here?
1: Of course. I mean, we we heard words tantamount, uh, you know, to that uh, that uh, you you got enough. How many experts do you need? You know, that sort of thing. But given how hard it is to convict a police officer, I liken it to leaping leaping over a chasm. How fast uh, do you need to run? Well, as fast as you can and hard as you can, <laughs> you know, right. and uh, and and you don't want to kind of in your moderation kind of miss the mark. And so, how do you calculate, modulate? Uh, how much is enough? I, we just knew how important it was to have police officers speak to uh, proper policing for jurors, and from as many different angles as were relevant. Uh, whether it is uh, from the police training point of view, from um, from you know, the first aid training that received any number of different perspectives on policing that we thought were implicated by the facts and the jurors needed to know about from the police about the police.
2: That's right. And, and in terms of, you know, criticism, I guess I've always been willing to accept a criticism. If the worst thing you can say about me or our, or our team is that we put too much into it. That's great criticism. I love that criticism. You can, you can say you can it all day long. If, if what we did, however, was to kind of, you know, take shortcuts to not, um, just leave it all out on the field to use a, you know, sports analogy, you know, that's criticism that I would, that that would hurt, that would cut because we needed people to understand, people in this community to understand that we were fighting for, for, for justice in this case, that we were going to fight and we were going to fight hard and we were going to fight for every single ounce of evidence that we could put in. Mm-hmm.
0: We'll be right back to my interview with Jerry Blackwell and Steve Slisher after this. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. If there's one thing that all former U.S. attorneys for the Southern District of New York have in common, it's that we love a good sauce. It's even rumored, although I can't fact-check this, that Ogden Hoffman, who served in the position from 1841 to 1845, never ate a meal dry. Now you're probably asking, What does sauce have to do with my cell phone bill? It's because Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell all of their wireless services online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For a limited time, their premium wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get the new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com Slash Preet. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at slash Preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mintmobile for details. So, one of the things that's interesting to me, and I, I wrote about it in an essay a couple of weeks ago. And you didn't talk about race for the reasons that we discussed. And it's not necessary to prove motive in a case like this. Except as I was uh, learned, and as I also tried to teach, you know, jurors have some curiosity. They want to know what the theory of why the guy did the thing he did. And unless I missed it, you didn't really address it until much later in the case in the summation. And in the summation, you said about Mr. Chauvin. They
2: were pointing cameras at him, recording him, telling him what to do, challenging his authority, his ego, his pride. Not the kind of pride that makes you do better, be better. The kind of ego-based pride. But the defendant was not going to be told what to do. The defendant,
0: he chose pride over policing. Why was it necessary to make that point? And why wait so long to make that point?
2: As you said, jurors want to know why somebody did something. They they, they want an explanation. And I believe that, uh, you know, based on the evidence that we introduced, that was a reasonable inference. Um, if you just looked at the look on his face, not only in, you know, what's been referred to as Exhibit 17 over and over in the still photo, but if, if you watch the bystander video and the way he was interacting with the crowd— um, and how they were crying out to him over and over, uh, you know, get up off him, he's human, you know, you're hurting him, you're killing him, right? For him not to respond to that, to not attend to the person who is who is right beneath him, but instead to kind of stare these people down, um, it, it seemed to me to be fairly apparent uh, from what we introduced. Now, in terms of introducing that you know, in a, in an opening statement, for example, that would be argumentative. That would, you know, rightfully draw an objection. Um, you, you really can't make that, uh, that. What would be an argument? And and in terms of
0: putting, and you couldn't elicit it from witnesses either, probably. Right. That's right.
2: Right. You can't. It was something that needed to be said, but that was a, a matter of closing
1: argument. And and, and taken mostly just circumstantially, uh, from both his body language and what could be seen. We did have a ruling also from from the court that that limited uh, the evidence that could be admitted that characterized state of mind for anyone mm-hmm. right and, and, and so that was the other thing to, to navigate, but but we did understand that the jurors were looking for this extra piece to connect the dots and and it might not have been enough, although certainly true, uh, that there are empowered people, at least those who feel they're empowered, who will sometimes mistreat, mistreat others just because they can. Yeah. Uh, And, and and there's nothing you all can do about it. I do what I want as long as I want to whom I want. And that's what I'm doing. Um, and, and that's true too, but it was easier to talk about in terms of pride and ego, um, as, um, as an explanation for the jurors.
0: Here's something else I found really interesting. And then also even more interesting when I realized from the things that you two have said in the, in the last couple of weeks that Attorney General Keith Ellison played a substantial role in the trial strategy and that is witness order. And I was surprised that you began with the bystanders until I saw the testimony unfold. And I guess my question is if you can answer, was it always the plan to start with these bystanders or during the course of preparation and preparing these witnesses did it come to your realize did you come to realize just how compelling they were because often in a case like this you might begin with a law enforcement witness who's unlikely to go arrived, particularly since you had so many law enforcement witnesses, including the chief who were able to testify. I'm just, as, as, a, as a former trial lawyer, maybe future again, <laughs> what the thinking was there?
2: Uh, you know, we discussed it a lot. We talked okay. a lot about um, witness order and how best to present us. And, um, you know, it really came back to the bystander video. What is it that touched everyone? You know, what is it that really touched people's hearts and, and shocked the conscience? It was that bystander video um, that, w- that was shot, that was seen around the world.
1: But it, it was really, it was a function, though, of where do we start our story? Uh, do we start it in the 929? Uh, do we start it uh, chronologically uh, at the point he arrives at Cup Foods? And, and we decided that, that the main thing for this case is what's happening in the 929. And, and so let's start with the main thing and keep focused on the main thing. Uh, and, and the best way to be able to characterize that 929, apart from the video we have, uh, would be the eyewitness testimony about what was happening there and the efforts to intervene. And, uh, and it, it, it started with the idea that we'll start our story uh, with what's happening in the subdual and the restraint on the ground. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the bystanders were part of that. Now, at the same time, um, it, it would be no, no surprise, I don't think I'm saying anything out of school, that, that we would expect that a defense of the case would would be focused on uh, the sensitivities that might apply to officers on the scene, to mis- people like Mr. Mm-hmm. Um and will basically talk about uh, the bystanders more or less as objects, mm-hmm. uh, and and even Mr. Floyd, and uh, and so we knew that there would be a need to uh, humanize uh, all of them, to humanize mm-hmm. these humans, and mm-hmm. and maybe one of the sub themes, at least sub thoughts, <laughs> in the case. Uh, was being able to just reveal and give to the jurors the fundamental humanity of all the persons who were there. And, uh, and the premise was that the, that the humanity that unites all of us will be greater than any of these different ideas uh, that, that divide us. Uh, you know, the unruly mob, um, crazed on drugs, um, uh, hostile and angry Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things are kind of cut through once you kind of once you see the anguish and feel the anguish of the bystanders who are just trying to save a life. I can't feel helpless. I don't have a mama even
2: to stand him. And pre, you know, you're starting out with a law enforcement witness, and that's a whole language selection that's going to be imprinted upon the jurors they'll last throughout the trial. So, for example, you know, uh, if an officer is discussing this event, they're going to exit the vehicle, they're going to approach the (laughs) the subject. So it'll either be a subject or a suspect. It's not a person, you know. And so uh, it is, it's important to come back, as Jerry said, to the humanity of it, to have people say, we saw a man on the ground being pinned down by others who was hurting and crying out in pain that that's the language that we need to use. And then the rest of it, you know, can be in the context of that, you know, initial reaction.
0: You talked about the video and there was a lot of debate in, you know, legal circles. And I had some of this on the podcast too, about how often would you show the video? And I know that you too also, in thinking about the strategy here, you know, worried with the team about the jury becoming desensitized And, and something I thought was really remarkable about the video and how you folks used it. And that is, Obviously, the video as a whole was played at the start and it's jarring and shocking and most people hadn't seen it in its entirety. And if they had, it had been close to a year since they'd seen it on cable television. And so people get an immediate impression of a man having his life snuffed out by Officer Chauvin in the video. But then there were little things in the video that you pointed out that maybe were lost. And what I thought was fascinating in hearing you talk about the case in a different forum, and I wonder if you could elaborate, is one of the reasons you thought it was okay to play the video more than, more than a few times was that you individually yourselves kept finding new things that supported the understanding that this was a deliberate uh, and at least indifferent uh, act on the part of Chauvin.
2: You hear George Floyd saying to Chauvin, my stomach hurts, my neck hurts, everything hurts. And um, chauvin, not only acknowledging that he hears him, but um you know just kind of dismissively mocking him
1: uh-huh uh-huh uh-huh
2: yeah and 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 that those are some things that you miss you know not only when you see the video once but recall there are numerous videos here, so we have the bystander video, the microphones are closest to the bystanders, and so you can hear what they're saying and discussing what we caught. Uh, on on that video you're referring to with the body worn cameras uh, of the officers, and so you recall that one of the um, you know, themes of the defense was that the crowd was so distracting that these officers couldn't do their job. But yet you heard them speaking in normal tones, leisurely picking rocks out of the you know the tire tread and responding to George Floyd when he was when he was expressing that he was hurting. Um, and and so yeah, those there were there was a lot in the video. But as to the issue of desensitizing, you know, desensitizing um, based on playing it, I guess uh, for myself, having watched all of these videos, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, um, the humanity of it never uh, leaves you. It, 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 it's something that you cannot become desensitized to. You can become desensitized to a gory scene in a movie you can become desensitized to that. Maybe even a photograph, uh, perhaps. But, but watching uh, a man die slowly, uh, I, I don't know how you can become desensitized to it, quite frankly. None of us on the team did. One of the most difficult things in preparing uh, the closing was figuring out how to say the words without becoming emotional
0: been? Can I ask a question that people might have? Why would that have been so bad?
2: You know, I think that uh, as a prosecutor, you owe it um, to the system to present a case um, based on the facts and based on the evidence and not some sort of uh, improper, you know, plea to your own emotion. This isn't about me, right? This is about what happened to this man. And, um, you know, it it certainly would not be uh, appropriate, in my view, for me to, uh, to become overly emotional such that I You know, we're we're to start
0: to cry. Um, Can I ask you a question? Just because it it occurred to me, and sure, defense lawyers listening may not like this question. Is it appropriate for defense lawyers to cry in summation? Uh, You know, I I don't think so. Um, But uh, you've seen it happen, uh, sure. (laughs)
1: Right? I mean, certainly there there was a
0: defense lawyer that that was familiar to our office, cried every summation. Yeah,
1: Yeah. and and I I wouldn't think, uh, and and, uh, (laughs) I do know certain lawyers in the civil context who 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 cry. Uh, in, in every trial, they tell the same story in closing and it, they cry in it too, uh, every time. Um, yeah, I wouldn't think that you're required to be something other than human, that you have the normal mm-hmm. human emotions, um, but, but a planned stage kind of crying, that kind of emotion, I, I would be concerned, uh, how do you know where it begins and ends? And, <laughs> and you may lose it uh, mm-hmm. as, the, uh, as a prosecutor or a defense lawyer.
0: Going into the trial, was your greatest concern uh, with respect to a plausible defense from the beginning and during the trial, always the the causation and the confusion that might be wrought by the medical arguments that the defense was going to be making about the cause of death, or was it something else?
1: No, that that certainly was uh, to to me uh, hugely of concern. Um, as you know, I focused uh, primarily on uh, the the medical case, and and Steve primarily on use of force, um, but. As the person focused on the medical, I felt at the end of the day, they won't be able to point to any policy or training or anything that permitted Mr. Chauvin to do what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and to the extent they have a bop gun that they were loading up, uh, it's to make all their arguments around medical causation, which is uh, where they really hope to make hay. Um, and uh, out, of, out of everything from uh, his, his high blood pressure, his enlarged heart, uh, the blood vessels, um, the paraganglioma. Um, you name it. On the one hand, he was this human being that had superhuman strength, of, you know, the power of John Henry. And, uh, and then on the other hand, he was a ticking time bomb who was about to fall apart at any second. And, uh, and would argue either one of those, depending on um, uh, what suited the moment. Uh, so that, that to me was a real concern. The video played obviously prominently in the medical causation case, uh, because it either ruled in certain things or ruled them out based on what you could see on the video uh, that there are certain things I uh, talked a lot about, for example, the anoxic seizures, uh, that, uh, that are a result of low oxygen, uh, in, in the brain an involuntary reflex that you can see, uh, in the video that we can point to, we can point it out, which is not the sort of thing you would see if you didn't know what an anoxic seizure is, um, or where it manifests. But, but, uh, the direct answer to your question was, yes, we were concerned about the, uh, the medical, uh, causation case, um, uh, whether it is his, um, his comorbidities that is in his, in his own body and or uh, their focus on his history of, uh, of drug addiction and drug use.
0: A huge issue in the case relating to causation was what the standard is. And there was a competing view as to what you had to prove to show that Mr. Chauvin was guilty of the crimes with which he was charged. Can you just recite again what, you, what the judge was going to tell the jury they had to find with respect to causation?
1: Well, it was actually it shouldn't have been a matter of competing views since it was in the jury instructions. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that, well, yeah. <laughs> well, I guess I guess I guess the defense had a dif- had a different request well, I, that, for that, jury instructions.
1: That, that's true, but but the the standard was uh, that that we had to prove that Mr. Chauvin's conduct was a substantial factor.
0: Right, not, not the exclusive factor, but a substantial factor.
1: A substantial factor, not even necessarily the greatest one. That there, there can right. be any number of substantial factors.
0: Right, so this is a question I've been dying to ask you guys, and I never knew if I would ever have the opportunity. And this may be a, you know, a geeky, nerdy, lawyer, tactical question. But there came a moment, and I'm sitting in the basement of my home where I record this podcast, and I also watched the trial, and the defense counsel completely and totally misstated the law with respect to causation. And I looked up at the screen, and I was expecting, you know, one of you guys to jump up and object. And then I had a debate with a few of my former colleagues about the propriety of objecting during summations and can it ever be done? And is it better to deal with it on rebuttal? So I'm dying to know how you thought about that. Because you did, obviously, robustly object later. And, and I think you may have even asked for a curative instruction. W- what was the thinking in your mind when the defense lawyer said that thing that completely misstated what the judge had said earlier? in terms of the law to the jury?
1: It, it was, it, at least in, in my mind, and that would have been uh, my call at the, at the time, was what would be the best way, what, what would be the best approach for getting this clarified and corrected before the jury? If I object here in the middle of his closing, I might be more apt to get a summary um, overruled from the judge. Um, it, it may have been fueled uh, by the fact that I'm objecting during the closing, for all I know. And, uh, and when there's a break, when there's a chance to have a thoughtful exchange with the court, we're much more likely to get an instruction that gets the information in front of the jury and get it corrected. And and so I opted for for waiting until we got to the break to get in front of the judge to raise the issue and uh, and to see if the judge would give, um, would cure it. And given what we were told by the court, I was frankly pleased we hadn't objected because mm-hmm. he just basically said, well, your turn is next. <laughs> and, and so you, you uh, can get up and... Uh, and explain this to the jury. So I didn't know at the time uh, how uh, the court would react to it. Um, and I, I felt that a better shot was to try to get it corrected when we had a chance to have a thoughtful exchange with the court that wasn't likely to happen right in the middle of the closing. And, um, and ultimately, uh, when he said, you can address it in your rebuttal, then I thought, well, just fine.
2: And Preet also, as you know, with a jury, you know, they, they really do... Depend on us. They they expect us to be straight with them, and your credibility with them is just—it's so important. And if you have a situation where your opposing counsel says something that just is, you know, it's an incorrect statement of law. It's different than what the judge said. I think they do that at their peril. I think that the 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 jurors uh, then see. Well, gosh you know, this attorney said this, but that's not what the judge said. And they do tend to defer to the judge. And so, you know, I uh, I certainly had a visceral reaction to it as well. Uh, but I did think to myself, uh, as with Jerry, it's like, well, that's not going to be something that they're going to be glad they said.
0: You know, as lawyers in the process, and obviously a defense lawyer has to prove his case and has to represent his client zealously. But do you have a theory as to why he misstated the law? Uh, I didn't see any sort of mistake there. I don't think that was carelessness.
1: I've been in front of judges who would go absolutely crazy if some lawyer stood up and misstated the law.
0: Judge Mukasey, I've, I've said this before, who later became the attorney general, if you tried a case in front of him, if that defense lawyer said that thing in front of Judge Mukasey, he, you would have heard him say, sustained, even
1: though there had been no objection. Right. Yeah, I have something. The, the floor would open up and you would just fall in a hole uh, to do that. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. and, and, uh, and I am... I, um, but I, I wasn't sure exactly how this would would, would play out um, uh, there in the closing. And I thought if we had a shot at getting it corrected, it would be um, when we had a chance to have a real thoughtful discussion with the court. Then on the other hand, well, if he says, I'll leave it up to your argument, then, well, that's not all bad either. <laughs> um, to, to kind of start off with a rebuttal that uh, that what you heard isn't to tell until you straight. I mean, you know, with a, an argument that starts with, look at the totality of the circumstances and look at it uh, honestly, truthfully, and it begins with misstating the standard. I mean, that, that, uh, that's a non-starter.
0: What was the, the feeling in the courtroom? The mood, the, the, the tone, the tenor? Were there actually light moments? Was it always very heavy? And then how did that change, if at all, when you found out there was a verdict?
2: So there were some light moments. I mean, it was generally pretty somber, uh, you know, all the time. We, we, we had a job to do, uh, very serious. But, you know, it was, it was certainly, there was, uh, we were collegial, uh, polite to each other. You know, I can't think of any specific light moment, but it wasn't, um, it, it wasn't as contentious as one right. might imagine. Both parties were very focused on doing, doing their job. And, you know, on the prosecution side, we, of course, you know, sole burden of proof, Coordinating uh, a, a lot of uh, uh, witnesses and evidence, and you know, we were just very, very focused. I, I, I made the remark that I mean, there could have been hailing Pentecostal fire outside of the courtroom, and I, I wouldn't have noticed um, uh, at all because we were just so so locked in. A personality trait that's been pointed out to me uh, maybe isn't as charming as
1: one might imagine, too. <laughs> you get into trial mode. And, you uh, know, J- Judge Cahill was very much uh, in command of his courtroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a high degree of professionalism uh, between the, uh, the lawyers, the parties. Uh, and the jurors were very attentive. They took uh, you know, lots of notes. They paid attention. Uh, rarely saw anybody dozing off. Uh, on the jury, uh, but but I, I wouldn't describe there being kind of very many moments of of levity mm-hmm. during the trial. I mean, it, it's hard when every day you're watching a person mm-hmm. uh, die every day.
0: Yeah, and there were there were a lot of tears on occasion from the witnesses for good reason. Yes. Mm-hmm. So then you hear there's a verdict fairly quickly during which time during the deliberations that had taken place up to that time did not produce any questions from the jury, and I got you know I got texts from members of the press and others about what I thought that meant. And every instinct I had suggested, given the way that you put the case in, the strength of the case, the speed of the verdict, indicated to me that it was a guilty verdict, except, and I've heard people say this, you couldn't expect or say that because in other cases like this involving these dynamics, that has often not been the result. How did you think about it in, those, in, that, very, in that longest hour you had to wait before the verdict?
1: I think you just said it. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's, it's, uh, it, it, uh. Like as a
0: trial lawyer, you knew, but as a person in America, you were not sure.
1: That's absolutely right. Uh, that, that, and there is, there are a few disappointments greater, uh, than, uh, the anticipation of a positive verdict and you're sure of it and the jury comes in and you get the greatest gut punch of your life. Mm -hmm. Um, when, when they've decided something different, I didn't know how they could, uh, they had been out so little time in my view, uh, that they didn't really have time to argue about a great deal. So this all seems to look good for the prosecution. Uh, but these cases are tough cases. And and so it was uh, that was an agonizing, particularly the last 30 minutes of it sitting there.
2: The last 30 minutes was uh, yeah, that that was terrible. I, I I remember um you know coming to the to the courthouse and I was thinking the same thing. I was just logically thinking to myself, they didn't have any questions. They didn't ask to review any evidence. They haven't been out that long. Um, and, and so that suggested to me that this was going to be a verdict that we were happy with. But, you know, when then when you get to the last portion of it, of course, what you do is you uh, spend every nanosecond second guessing every word you uttered over the last month. Uh, and, and Is just that to- your
0: drill? Your drill is to, is to replay, like replay the trial in your head at that moment. As,
2: uh, yeah. It's the worst part, as you know,
1: right? Jerry, because Jerry, do you have a better drill than that? I, I, I do have a better <laughs> drill. I sit at the table and I answer random emails, which is, which is what I was doing. How
0: are you capable of doing, that's not a better drill. That's, that's ridiculous.
1: <laughs> How are you able to do that? Me- meditation, Preet. Right? So <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> helps me to focus. and uh, And so I thought just to sit here looking at the wall, staring at the people, feeling all the stray voltage, well, here's at least something like constructive I can do. I can answer these emails while I'm sitting here.
0: Do you brace yourself? Because I remember hearing that in my first trial ever as a younger person, to brace yourself and to have no emotional response at all, no matter what the verdict is. Do you think about that? And, and do you steel yourself to whatever the verdict is, even if it's one that you want and would be gratified to get?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's, this is somebody's life. This isn't a victory in that sense. It's an acknowledgement of the truth of what happened. But it's, it's not a cause for celebration. And yeah. so um, you just think of the weight of it. You've, you're aware of the fact that the, uh, that the family of George Floyd is watching. Philonis um, uh, was sitting behind us. And, and, and you feel that, and you're thinking to yourself, uh, you know, it, is this going to be a situation where we have to compose ourselves and come back and comfort them? Yeah, all of that runs through and, your head.
1: And, and for, for me, it was a little bit different, um, because when all is said and done, I mean, I, I got involved in this matter uh, as, for me, a spiritual cause. And uh, my duty was to give it my best and my utmost, uh, but to kind of work hard at not being attached to the results in the same way. That, that, um, that this, the battle, the struggle, uh, the fact that the nation has to, uh, has to itself wrestle with this, uh, the, the world is wrestling with this. Uh, is its own form of progress, in a way. Um, and, and while, don't get me wrong, I mean, we, we certainly did want uh, the guilty verdicts, but I really had kind of fixed in my mind uh, that, that my duty really was to serve and to give it my absolute best, and I felt I had done that. Um, and, and if they came back a different way, then I still would think that there's been a benefit from this trial. Uh, it just, just have to wrestle with it this way. And, and it moved us in some ways further down the track towards something that looks like a reconciliation, even though it wasn't just yet. Uh, it's mounting the pressure for we, we still have to deal with these issues. And, uh, and it's even not even clear case that we have to deal with these issues if it were an adverse, uh, adverse verdict. So I was uh, sort of prepared that, uh, as, as I say in meditation, you know, do your best and give it to God. And, uh, and that's, that's how I felt about it.
0: There's a legal question that I've gotten from a number of listeners. And that is, how can it be the case that the jury could come back and convict on all three counts, murder two, murder three, and, and manslaughter, when the mental states required to prove each of those is different? In other words, people are confused about how they could find guilt on all counts when it seems like you're talking about different kinds of crimes— not just lesser included, but for different mental states. Does that make sense as a question? And does one of you want to answer it?
2: Well, you know, what I can say is that I, I think that these, uh, when you look at the elements of what is required for each of the different uh, charges, you see very different things. And the, the murder to charge, it's a felony murder. It's unintentional felony murder. I've, I've described this before uh, as, a, as kind of a Rube Goldberg, you know, those machines where you have you know, you roll the ball and it hits a pin right, right, and knocks right. it right. And so it, it, it's kind of like that. I mean, what we had to prove was that there was a felony level assault, an, an intentional felony level assault, and that, that uh, during the commission of that assault, that the defendant caused George Floyd's death. And so the the required mental state there was, you know, intentional conduct that was an assault. It wasn't an accident that he found himself kneeling on George Floyd's neck. It was that he did some volitional act, which in fact was a felony level assault that caused the death. That's not at odds with the commission of uh, an eminently dangerous act, uh, the placing yourself on the neck and back of George Floyd for that extended period of time, given what law enforcement knows and has known for at least 30 years about the dangers of positional asphyxia, right? A trained known risk to do that for that extended period of time certainly was an eminently dangerous act. And so the mental state there is that, you know, uh, the defendant knew of this risk uh, and and took it, uh, notwithstanding the potential consequences. And then with our second degree manslaughter, it's kind of a variation of the same thing. You know, manslaughter is sort of a negligence-based offense. And so with that is not only... His actions, uh, but his willful inactions, his failures to act, uh, his failure to provide um, medical attention, Mm -hmm. uh, for example, despite the training and knowledge and the affirmative obligation to do so. And so these charges were similar in causation and whatnot. And you saw that in the, in the closing, how many of these uh, elements sort of merged into each other. But, but they weren't mutually exclusive. They were not exclusive. And to, to prove one is not to disprove um, the other. And that's why you know, the
0: convictions uh, of all three counts. Did either of you or both of you spend time with George Floyd's family after the verdict?
1: Oh, absolutely. hmm we, we, um, we, Can you
0: describe what their reaction was?
1: Uh, it was tearful. Uh, it was uh, jubilant. Uh, you could feel this what felt like a giant sort of exhalation uh, from the family, given the pressure that they were under, the tension they felt about whether there would be any justice for their brother, whether there would be some indication that at least his life mattered, and uh, and so to to have been there in the in the room with them, uh, with the hugs and the tears. Starting in the courtroom, actually, <laughs> with the Falonas, yeah, um, it was um, it was a powerful moment uh, with with the family, uh, with 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 their their sense that uh, that that there had at least been you know justice or at least accountability.
2: I think you know just to, speaking of the family, uh, I say that the family was remarkable. I want to put that in a little bit of context, you know, and over uh, two decades of prosecuting experience and, and certainly having to spend a lot of time, unfortunately, with people who've lost loved ones to violence. Um, a lot of people in that position, just they don't have anything to give right? because they've lost so much and they, they are themselves uh, so lost and, and, and it's difficult. The Floyd family was so giving of themselves, uh, um, just sending words of encouragement Telling us that we were doing a good job um, all the time. Uh, and, and just to be able to do that in, in a situation where they, you know, they lost, they lost George Floyd, they lost their loved one. But they always made time for us. They always took the time to specifically address each of us. If they thought that we had a good day in court, they would say that. Uh, as an advocate, um, you know, you find that so energizing. Uh, It it just gives you oxygen. It gives you something um, to fight for. And I I just thought that was remarkable that they were so giving of themselves in in that way.
0: Yeah, I mean, what could be tougher than that? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Were you in a position to see uh, the defendant Derek Chauvin's reaction? Because sometimes, depending on how the court is configured, the prosecutors cannot.
1: No, we could. Uh, He he was... uh, What's your observation about that? um, His his demeanor didn't change... um, um, one bit. Um, it, it was uh, very stoic. Uh, no uh, visible uh, emotions of, of any kind. Um, even when he was asked to, uh, to turn around for them to, to put the handcuffs on, uh, th- there wasn't any emoting of any kind that I saw.
0: Do you think he was expecting that you would move to remand him?
1: Yes, I would think so. I mean, I think, think his lawyers that. would have told him that, right?
0: I'm not sure the public appreciated
1: that. Yeah, I think he would, he would know that that's, that's pretty much the drill.
0: Now, see, I see, I know you've been asked this question before about what would have happened had Derek Chauvin testified, and I think you were on deck to do the cross, and I, I don't think you would answer the question as to what the themes or thrust of your cross would be, but I, I, let me ask you this question. How long do you think that cross-examination would have been after he testified on direct?
2: Mm, that's hard to say. You know, uh, you, prepare, you prepare yourself for every um, possible contingency, but the, the length of a cross-examination is something that just sort of happens. Right, it's uh, it, it's, there's not a prescribed time for it to come out of the oven, but you kind of get a sense of when it's done, uh, and so I, I really don't know. It would have taken as long as it would have taken to go through um, every moment of that restraint, uh, you know, of the nine twenty nine. I think that you would expect a, a cross examination of this to be about what the case was about, and that was. The restraint on the ground from the from the start uh, to the finish, and um, asking for justification for for all of it, but yeah, I don't know, I don't know how long it would have taken. Um, You know, it's it's just uh, it's
1: something that you feel when you're in the moment.
0: What's the proper sentence for Derek Chauvin?
1: Well, it's what Judge Cahill uh, decides is fair, and I think (laughs) (laughs) that's. uh, I'm I'm laughing because you you know how we can answer that
0: question. I know, but I (laughs) I had to ask. I had to ask the. I had to ask the question. So, Jerry, you know, one thing that people commented on with respect to not just you and Steve, but everyone on the on the government side, and we've talked about this during this interview, right? The government is supposed to be, you know, the sober, non-emotional, you know, non-fancy provider of information, and elicitor of facts above the fray. And I think all that is true. And very rarely should you, and, and in this case didn't, engage in flourish. And that might not be the right word for the question I'm about to ask. But boy, at the end of your rebuttal summation, you had a zinger. And again, that's not the right word either. It was a very powerful, short statement, but it stood apart from the way that that all of you talked about the case and the facts and the evidence before that point, I think. And here's what you said.
1: You were told, um, for example, that Mr. Floyd died because his heart was too big. You heard that testimony. And now, having seen all the evidence, having heard all the evidence, you know the truth. And the truth of the matter is that the reason George Floyd is dead is because Mr. Chauvin's heart was too small.
0: Boy, that's a devastating way to end
1: a rebuttal summation
0: why' you say that and why was it important to say it in that kind of way
1: I wanted to bring it back for 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 jurors to what they felt in their heart of hearts about uh, what is fundamentally wrong with what happened here uh, i I tend, tend to believe that people make their decisions first and foremost on what I call an emotional level based on uh, their own sense of what's of right and wrong
0: but you didn't do that along the way, right? That's right. What, what's what's fascinating about it to me, and and the brilliance of it to me at least is, you, you didn't overdo it. You did it there, and you did it in at the end. Um, it was almost like the way you would end. And I mean this as a compliment, because most movie summation writing, separate from getting the law wrong, is better than most real life summation writing. But it's kind of the way that the scene should have ended. If you would, if you had been writing this for the screen. Uh, about an incident like this that is so, you know, torn apart the country, that's the line you would have written.
1: I wanted the jurors to go away with with the the final thought being one that says, that's absolutely right. That's right. That if he had the the heart that was the size of a nine-year-old girl, George Floyd would still be alive. And it just seemed to capture it all. You know, I, I was very cognizant of the fact that um, not only are we prosecutors, but we're prosecutors in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And and Minnesotans, uh, you know, are a wonderful people. So so let me just say <laughs> that. But they're not a wonderfully emotive people, okay? So, um, and that uh, as one kind of older friend of mine who's in her 90s, uh, German, Lutheran, Minnesotan, uh, she, she kind of made the comment that uh, here we don't smile for no reason because showing teeth is a sign of aggression. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and so, so if you in Minnesota, if you if you have too much of the motive stuff, if it's too early on in a case, you, you risk turning off uh, some Minnesota mm-hmm. jurors in doing that. But I but I did want to get to the heart uh, again uh, to as sort of the punchline. If you distilled and boiled everything down to the fundamental narrative, what happened here was simply that a, that an officer did not care enough. And when all is said and done, he had a duty to care. Uh, he was trained in how to provide care, and he needed to put the care back into. in your custody is in your care, and uh, and and that to me was was the bottom line that plays out for all the counts and the charges and the evidence and the experts is fundamentally, he just didn't care.
2: And, and the brilliance of it, Preet, was that it was conduct and causation in a single statement. Right. That was it. Was it was it was beautiful and lyrical. And as an advocate. It was something that uh, I admired and enjoyed watching and hearing very, very much. When did you
0: come up with that statement?
1: Well, I'm just kind of thinking about <laughs> when it was. It wasn't on the spot, I'll tell you that. But, mm-hmm. but, uh, did, it, but it,
0: did it come to you the night before as a revelation? It, mm-hmm.
1: it, it came a, a, few, a few days before um, as sort of a revelation when, when I was thinking about all the arguments about uh, his comorbidities, you know, the size of his heart and so on. And I thought, well, that's a lot of nerve. Mm-hmm. Uh, focus on the size of his heart. And right, I said, right, ah, right, I get right. it.
0: <laughs> That's a lot of nerve focusing on the size of his heart.
1: Right. Exactly. Right.
0: Well, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you for your service. I understand that, that you may be listeners of the podcast. So I'm honored by that as well.
2: We are. We are. Uh, yes. And, and, Thank you. That's
0: why the case went so well.
1: It, we, we learned it all from you. It's for because listening to of me. Podcast. It's, it's because of me. I was wondering when we were going to get to that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so modest Not of you to, wait, to, to bring it up till now.
0: I too have served the country <laughs> <laughs> in an, indir- <laughs> an indirect way. <laughs> well, you both. You know it, this when you know we we put the request out. I wanted to talk to you folks. I was thrilled when we got the quick reply that you would come on. You know, I could spend three hours with you talking about the case, the impact of the case. And I guess let me just end with that, Uh, although it goes beyond the task you had as lawyers in this case, but you're also Americans who care about the issue, as we started with. Final question, you know, what do you think this means and where do we go from here in the country on the issues that have been raised by the conduct of Mr. Chauvin? Uh, for
2: for me, Preet, it's a recognition of the need for human empathy and compassion. I don't know what it means in terms of the larger issues going forward with uh, policing and police reform and whatnot. I'm not a, I'm not a policymaker, and I guess I leave uh, those uh, decisions to policymakers. I, I do think that just sort of as a country, as a people— we need to recognize each other's humanity more and to have empathy for each other more and not just simply decide, you know, whoever is saying um, what's being said to decide what side you're on, ignore all evidence to the to the contrary and only listen to that that supports your preconceived position. You know, it, for, for me, it means a lot of that. And, and uh, just even seeing the way people... Uh, would would treat uh, folks who had testified in the trial. You see different uh, tweets and things that people say, um, disparaging uh, people, disparaging certain witnesses, disparaging anyone, and and you're just kind of amazed by it. Thinking to yourself, you know, would these people say this um, to each other's face? Uh, is it okay to be saying things like this online? To just sort of just uh, other examples of of disregarding each other's uh, humanity. And and I hope that this is uh, something that people can recognize and see that when, you know, what are the perils? What happens uh, when we do that? When uh, the person who we're there to protect and serve is not a person, uh, but a super person or mm-hmm. a superhuman? Where does that end? What does that cause us to do? And Preet, I
1: agree with Steve.
2: We, uh, Jerry and I, didn't know each other coming into this. Uh, we began to see each other. As uh, as lawyers who love to try cases, who fight hard, and who like to win cases, um, I come away with this, um, from this experience, uh, with a friend, with mm-hmm. a new friend. And that's uh, that's something that I've gained. I, I say in public service, if you do public service, you, you get more than you give. And I certainly have uh, received more than I've given in, in, in having the privilege of trying this case.
1: Likewise. And... And and if nothing else, I would like to encourage other uh, private practitioners on the civil side uh, to think about ways uh, that you, too, can um, step into similar shoes uh, to uh, be of use in uh, in similar cases. And uh, you you don't have to know every aspect of, uh, of criminal law, but there are things that we learn in complex civil that are useful in a case of this sort.
0: Great message to end on. Jerry Blackwell and Steve Slisher Thank you for your service. Thank you for doing what you do. Thank you for being on the show.
1: No, pre, we really really enjoyed it. So, thank you very much so.
0: Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guests, Jerry Blackwell and Steve Slicher. If you like what we do, Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. The cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azalai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Jennifer Korn, Chris Boylan, and Sean Walsh. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.